So that's 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. But when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and he did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he can be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he urged, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot you from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, 
Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in the middle of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveller to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now, every Wednesday night, um, my wife Jenny goes out to study the Bible with the international students at IGG, um, and I'm left at home to um, look after the children. And I decided at the start of the year that we were going to have fun together. Um, And so each Wednesday night, I uh, make them a cup of hot chocolate. Um, And then after a bit of trial and error, I stumbled on this thing that meant that we could go from having a kind of conflicted, difficult, fighty sort of an evening to having a fun time together. And it's this incredible thing. You may not have heard of it. And let me share my best parenting hack with you. And I sit them down in front of the television. Um, And so a couple of weeks ago, we were watching the remake of Disney's The Lion King um, together. And it's a great film, isn't it? Um, A great score, great songs, great plot arc, a great um, animation, um, a brilliant final scene, great characters. And one of my children pretended to play it cool, but really we were all gripped um, as we were watching it. Now I wonder, um, have you ever thought about the kingdom theology of the Lion King? Okay, you might think I'm overthinking it, and let me just say that's not a question that I asked my children, Um, but it does have a kingdom theology, doesn't it? Um, First of all, it teaches us that it is possible to ruin the kingdom, right? But it takes a really, really bad guy to do it. So just think of Scar. I mean, he is a real villain, isn't he? 
Um, he's full of malevolence um, and evil, envy, jealousy, pride, cruelty. He's got this phalanx of mengy, sort of dark-hearted hyenas behind him. And it's only kind of when you get that sort of a guy um, that you ruin the kingdom. It takes a real pantomime villain, Hitler, Putin, Stalin, I don't know, Boris, a really bad guy <laughs> to ruin the kingdom. And therefore, as long as we're basically nice, here's the second thing, as long as we are basically nice, there's no real reason why we shouldn't start to build the kingdom now. I mean, Simba's not perfect, is he? And he's lazy, he lacks responsibility, he's a bit limp, to be honest, but he's a basically nice guy. And so when he puts his mind to it, there's nothing stopping him from putting everything right. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. We're probably lazy, probably a bit selfish. We're basically nice. And so we ought to expect our churches to be communities of peace and joy and kindness kind of semi-automatically. As long as we can keep the really bad guys out, there's no reason why our society shouldn't be a kingdom of peace. Two lessons from the Lion King. Well, listen, if you've learned your kingdom theology from the Lion King, um, this morning's passage is going to come as a real shock um, to us. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 is all about what it takes to ruin the kingdom of God. We saw last week that we had this incredible scene of David's kingdom as the kingdom of God, full of the Lord's loving kindness, his tenderness and his grace. But it turns out what it takes to ruin all of that is not a pantomime villain, no scar. What it takes is just an ordinary run-of-the-mill sinner like you and me, David's. Firstly this morning, David's sin ruins the kingdom. Now it is obvious that 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a chapter about sin, isn't it? Um, uh, In the course of the chapter, David breaks at least four of the commandments. Um, He covets, he commits adultery, he lies, he murders. It's obviously a chapter about sin. It's also a chapter about the ruin of the kingdom. It's breathtakingly awful what happens in the course of chapter 11. Uh, First of all, David ruins Bathsheba. I look back to verse 2. Now, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The narrator is very sparing on the details. He doesn't really tell us anything about anybody's inner life. He doesn't tell us about Bathsheba's feelings and whether she consented or not. He does say enough to make it very clear that David is the bad guy. I mean, number one, Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's 30 mighty men, the very greatest heroes that established his kingdom. Number two, she was bathing, not to be provocative or to put herself in the king's path, but to purify herself from her periods. In other words, she was keeping the law. She was being godly. Number three, David, in order to get her, flexes the machinery of state. He sends messengers that should be used to be taking messengers to and from uh, the front instead to get this woman into his beds. And then there's the set of verbs in verse four. Did you notice them? They might sound familiar if you were here last week. And so David sent messengers and took her 
and she came to him. Sent to Cain. We had them last week when David sent messengers to Lodabar, who took Mephibosheth from Lodabar, and he came to David in Jerusalem. Mephibosheth, who David sent for, took so that he came, so that he might show him his kindness, his love, his generosity, his goodness. He sent messengers. They took Bathsheba, and she came so that David might satisfy his lust. And Bathsheba is left with a broken marriage and with defiled purity and carrying another man's child. And first of all, David ruins Bathsheba. He tries to ruin Uriah as well. He sends for him and he asks hypocritically about his peace. I mean, that's gall, isn't it? And then he tries to get Uriah to cover his tracks. And did you notice as the passage was being read, that in this book, which is all about ups and downs, about the Lord bringing people up from the ash heap and the Lord sending people down for their pride, did you notice how determined David is to thrust Uriah down? And so he tells him to go down to his house. And then David doesn't, Uriah doesn't go down to his house in verse 9. And then David, when he's told that Uriah didn't go down in verse 10, asks, why didn't you go down in verse 10? And then in the end, even after all of David's scheme, he still hasn't gone down. Of course, in one sense, he just wants him to go home. But I think the narrator wants us to see the point. He is trying to push Uriah down, actually to pull him down to his level. Because what David does is quite seedy. He tells Uriah to go home and to wash his feet, which is probably a fairly crass euphemism. Uriah is a warrior who's determined to stay battle ready and pure whilst the ark of the Lord is out in the fields. And David just wants him to relax and enjoy the comforts of home. In other words, like him. When Uriah won't do it, David gets him drunk. The main problem with David's plan, David's already ruined his home and now he wants to ruin the man as well. The main problem with this plan is that Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. David ruins Bathsheba. He tries to ruin Uriah. And then, well, then Joab. Now, listen, the bit with Joab at the end of the chapter is not about David trying to ruin Joab, because the fact is that Joab didn't take any ruining. Um, Joab's been a bad man since the beginning of the book, a man of blood. And he stays a bad man, a man of blood, willing to do what it takes to be the enforcer the whole way through to Samuel. And so David doesn't ruin Joab, but he does ruin something in the end of the passage. And verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Well, that's stark, isn't it? Remember last week how kind David was. And now he sends Uriah's death warrants by his own hands. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And Joab doesn't take much persuading. He's always been willing to cynically do what it takes, and so he acquiesces easily enough. David does make Joab look like a bit of a fool. Um, Joab is a a strategic and and astute commander, and here is David making Joab do something really daft that gets a whole bunch of the men killed to cover over his tracks. Again, think of the contrast. David's who wept and lamented over the death of Saul, now happy to hear 
about the death of a bunch of his most loyal warriors. But the thing that he really ruins here is not Joab and not Joab's reputation, it's the kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 11 marks a really key moment in the book of Samuel because this is the moment when David hands the keys of the kingdom over to Joab and David never gets them back. In the whole of the rest of 2 Samuel, Joab is going to be the real power. David gives Joab, the man of blood, control over the kingdom. David never really gets it back again. And also that Joab could help him to cover over what he did with Bathsheba. It's a horrible moment. David's sin ruins the kingdom. It is David's David, who in his sin ruins the kingdom. I don't think that's what we're expecting at the start of 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the chapter does begin with a very clear threat, an enemy at the gates, the Ammonites. And the Ammonites are a pantomime baddie. They are the enemies of David's kindness, satanic, serpentine spitting in his face. And so you might think that the the front is the place of war and Jerusalem is the place of peace. The danger is out there, but where David is, everything is safe. But it turns out that's all back to front. The real war is the one that's happening in David's house, in David's bed, in David's heart. When I was a student, I read a, a book by a guy called Chris Lungard. It was about sin. It was called The Enemy Within. Well, just so. That's certainly what's going on here. The real enemy is not the nasty Ammonite army out there. It is the enemy within. It's David's sin that ruins the kingdom. And it's really important that we understand that this is the same David's that we were talking about last week. Uh, We live in a judgmental age. And so when the mighty fall, we retrospectively re-engineer everything to show that they were always a villain, really. It's not true here. This is the same sweet psalmist of Israel. Actually, lots of his best psalms he hasn't even written yet. This is the same guy who shows us what it is to really love the Lord. We aspire to love God like he did. This is the same guy whose prayers teach us how to pray. It's the same man who was the king of steadfast love in chapter 9. It's the same man who waited so patiently all of that time. It's the same David. We'd love to be able to write him off and say, we are better than that. You mustn't do that. David was the best of men, and his sin ruined the kingdom. In fact, everything about this chapter is there to make it obvious that David is relatable, isn't it? Where did everything start to go wrong in this chapter? Was it when David stayed home and didn't go to the front? Can you imagine making that decision? I can. Was it when David was idly lazing around in the afternoon? Can you imagine doing that? 
Was it when David's eyes landed on Bathsheba and instead of looking away, he kept looking? Can you imagine doing that? Was it when he sent the idle inquiry? Who was that? Just put in a little Google search. Can you imagine doing that? It's so easy to put ourselves into his place and so hard to know what we would do if we had his power and his opportunity. As for the rest of the chapter, well, anyone who's been following the post office scandal over the last few weeks knows how easy it is to do the most despicable things, the cruelest things, in order to protect your brand. Is it really so difficult? Let me ask, in our society, is it really so difficult to imagine people being willing to take innocent life in order to avoid the consequences of their adultery? David didn't ruin the kingdom by being unlike us. He ruined the kingdom by being like us. It's tempting to say that until verse 27, you think that he's got away with it. And after a fashion, I suppose he did. But when you think back to last week, everything that really mattered was already in tatters. And so here it is, the Bible's correction to the Lion King. It doesn't take scar to ruin the kingdom. The truth is Mephasa could do it all by himself. I wonder... Have we seen how catastrophically destructive our sin really is? And then it gets worse. Secondly, the Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. This is where the Lord steps in, verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said... It's such a stark moment. Uh, Chapter 11 is full of sendings. Joab and Bathsheba and David, they're all sending messages left, right and centre. And the post office never had it so good. Um, And now it's God's turn. The Lord sent Nathan. And famously, Nathan sets David up and he brings this case to him um, of of the poor man and his lamb. Um, And if you're paying any attention at all, any attention, there are all sorts of hints in the case that really we're talking about David and Bathsheba. But of course, David stopped paying attention to God's word a long time ago. And so he falls for it, hook, line and sinker, and he delivers the verdict. Verse five, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan comes back. You are the man. And we get the description from the Lord of what David has done. Number one, you've struck down Uriah with the swords. Number two, you've taken another man's wife. And then number three, you have despised the word of the Lord. And then, on top of all of the sort of self-imposed consequences of David's sin, we get something else, the Lord's judgment. Now, the Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. It's worth noticing that what the Lord does about David's sin is scrupulously just. And so, verse 10, because you brought the sword of the Ammonites against Uriah, the sword shall never depart from your house. Again, 
verse 11, because you lay um, with your neighbor's wife in secret, verse 11, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Again, verse 14, because you despised my promise about your children, um, verse 14, because you brought death to your neighbor's house, well, because you have scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It's scrupulously just that the punishment fits the crime. In every instance, the consequences go beyond David's. Do you see that? And over the coming chapters, uh, we're going to see that this word about David's wives um, and this word about David's children and this word about the sword is going to mean civil war in Israel and the loss of the kingdom. Thousands of people will die as a result of what David has done. And you might think, but that's really unfair. And I guess it kind of is unfair, isn't it? Except it's always like that when leaders fail. They don't just fail for themselves. They fail for the whole kingdom. And the point is that there are now two reasons why David has ruined the kingdom. If it wasn't enough that he's ruined it by his own natural consequences of his sin, God makes sure that justice is done and death comes. That's the problem with having a a good God, isn't it? I scrapped that. That is the beauty of having a good God. He will not sweep evil under the carpets. He will not tolerate cruelty and self-service and lust and deceit. Ancient Rome and the modern West might be happy to try to build peace on a foundation of lust and death. But the living God is not. And so even if the kingdom could survive the natural consequences of our sin, it won't survive the judgment of God. Here's this double guarantee that a sinful kingdom cannot be the kingdom of God. What David has already done to it, and then what God's sworn word will do, he will not let that kind of thing go. The Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. And I guess the question is, where does that leave us? Uh, People have talked about the shape of 1 and 2 Samuel as being like a kind of a two-humped camel. And bear this in mind, um, uh, a sort of a rise and a fall, the rise and fall of Saul, and then the rise and the fall of David. And I think that's essentially right. And the next seven or eight chapters are going to make very uncomfortable reading. Because the fact is that the Lord is going to follow through on this word of judgment. The child does die. War, the sword, does come. A neighbor does take David's wives. And of course that raises the question, is it just the same as with Saul? Saul went to the top and was then proud and was brought crashing down into despair. If the Lord is now bringing death and judgment on David's kingdom, is it just the same? Does everything end in the dust? And if David's sin is bad enough to ruin the kingdom, what hope does that leave us of forgiveness for our sins? 
If even David can tear the kingdom to pieces, what hope does that give us that the kingdom can ever be built? Where's hope going to come from? David's sin ruins the kingdom. The Lord's judgment brings death to the kingdom. And yet the Lord's promise still stands. Now the signs of grace start as soon as Nathan stops speaking and David says, I have sinned. And then over the next few verses, we find David proud, desensitized, cruel David, humbled and praying, fasting, turning to the Lord for grace. But, but nothing prepares us for grace when it comes. And um, did you see it? Look at verse 24. We didn't have it read a minute ago. It's such an important verse. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, it's the first time that she's called David's wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord's. I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? You might have expected that Bathsheba would be sent away to a nunnery. And yet somehow this relationship that has caused so much damage is blessed. And she conceives another son. And Nathan comes back not to pronounce judgment, but to declare God's love over the child. The child's named Solomon, the prince of peace. The child is named Jedediah the beloved of the Lord. It is scandalous grace, isn't it? And you might even feel outraged that out of all of the awfulness of chapter 11, this might be the result, that somehow David gets away with a happy family life. Um, It's important to see that the thing that makes this so good is not that this is kind of private grace to David. And this isn't mostly about David kind of finding love and a new family out of his adultery. In fact, Um, As it turns out, um, David's family life is always going to be a mess and from this point forwards in the books of Samuel. Now, it's not mostly about private grace for David's. This is about something much better. It is about the promise, the promise that he would have a son who would build God's house and that in the end he would have a son who would reign over God's kingdom in peace forever. And extraordinarily, not even in spite of his adultery and his murder, but even through it, that grace, that promise is on track. Now, Jedediah is the first installment. He will build the temple in Jerusalem. The final outcome is Jesus. Sin ruins the kingdom. Judgment tears down the kingdom. But there is something powerful enough to bring it back. Grace that gives life to the dead. The promise of God still stands. Just like last week, I think there's a twofold purpose here. On the one hand, these are chapters about where the kingdom cannot come from. In a word, from us. And they have tremendously, tremendous explanatory power, don't they? As long as people like David, as long as people like us hold the keys, we cannot experience the kingdom of God. Not really. We need to stop being shocked 
when church is not heaven. Um, we need to stop being shocked when we need to forgive people. And I need to stop being shocked when I need to ask people for forgiveness. It doesn't take a pantomime villain to ruin the kingdom of God on earth. And basically nice people, I'm sure you're all lovely, basically nice people can't build it. This is about a passage about where the kingdom cannot come from. But it's also a passage about where the kingdom of God must come from, because God has made a promise, and so it must come. I just think how much chapter 11 and 12 have done um, to make us despair of God's promise. We've had lust, adultery, deceit, murder, corruption, conspiracy, and then the searing pronunciation of judgment. And we might think that there is no hope for the promise after all of that. And we would be wrong. The Lord sent another messenger to another member of the house of David. You might remember how it goes. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary home as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name not Jedediah, but Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the extraordinary grace of your promise that means that even in spite of the sin, the corruption, deceit, death, lust, and despair of these chapters, that your promise still stands. And we praise you so much that you have done what it took to establish the kingdom. We thank you so much that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that by your word, you'd be teaching us uh, to trust not in man and not in ourselves, but in you, in your son, and in the power of your living words. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.